Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark's Gospel. We're back in Mark. <clears throat> Mark 12, beginning with verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come this morning to, to hear the word of God preached, Lord, we know that, that our hearts can be uh, dull, our hearts can be distracted, our hearts can even be set upon things that are really important that are going on in our lives right now but it, it may keep us from you but God we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in us to give us ears to hear Lord let us not be distracted but let our hearts be wholly set upon you so please work mightily Holy Spirit not only to uh, give me words to speak but Lord for to give us ears to hear we ask in your name Amen Well, if I might be completely honest with you uh, this morning, there there have been a few times in, in just my times with the Lord as I'm reading God's Word, as I'm praying, as I'm meditating upon God's Word, that, uh, and I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about eternal matters, and I I begin to see my life differently, and, and the world in which I live differently. I mean, it's almost like, the life that I'm living here on this earth is the dream. And in those times when I'm in God's Word and I'm praying and I'm reading, it's almost like that's the reality. That's when I'm awake and I can see clearly. And, and I see my life oftentimes in, in light of eternity. And I see that happening more and more. And, and actually, I'm very happy for that. Um, it's, it's almost like I, I think about, you know, one day when I stand before God, and I have to give an account for the way that I've lived my life, you know, uh, how will I feel about that? How will I perceive that? And it's not so much that I fear God, that He is going to be angry and send me to hell, as much as I love the Lord and I want to please Him. And I just think, Lord, sometimes when I look at my life, there's things that I think, Lord, I wish I could change that. Lord, I wish I could have instill different priorities in the lives of my kids. Oh Lord, I wish I could have treated my wife uh, way differently. 
And I just, you know, not only do I think about my past life, but I also think about the future. And I think, Lord, what ought my priorities to be? And it, it's sort of a, it, an exciting thing, because in one sense, the Christian life has a purpose. The Christian life has a focus that we are to have. And we're going to look at that in our text today. Uh, but just as we get back into Mark's gospel, I know it's it's been a while since we've been here, and I'm so thankful for the men who have brought the word of God to you until I was able to get back. Uh, but it's really good to be back in the gospel of Mark. And we're really in the last life of Jesus. Last life. The last week of the life of Jesus here on earth. That's what I meant to say. And uh, this is Tuesday of that week. And Sunday... Uh, he rode into Jerusalem, and it's what we would consider Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, and he goes to the temple, and then that evening he leaves, and he goes back to the place where he's staying outside of the city, and then on Monday he comes in, and he curses the fig tree, and he, he cleanses the temple, and then, um, then he returns home, and then on Tuesday he comes back, and the fig tree is, is withered, and he comes in, and he's teaching in the temple, and Jesus' authority is questioned as he's teaching in the temple. It's like one group after another group comes up to just grill him and just to do everything they can to see if they could somehow trip him up in the things that, that he says. The first group that sort of comes to him is the Herodians and, and the Pharisees. And they want to talk to him about taxes. And they want to see if they can get him to speak against the government to get him in trouble with the government or or to support taxes so then the people won't be so happy with him and then you have the sadducees that come up and and they want to talk to him about the resurrection and uh, as they're talking there's this scribe that's listening and uh he he hears the answers that jesus says and he's impressed with jesus and so he comes up to jesus and he asks him which commandment is the most important now to appreciate this encounter i think you've got to understand who the scribes are that these were men who were experts in studying the torah and studying the law studying the word of god kids they were not temple men like the sadducees they were men of the word uh, the closest thing i can think to sort of describe them is maybe like resident theologians you know they were like the experts if you want to know you know what the Bible says or how to interpret something you sort of go to them they were the people who started synagogues after the exile uh, in the Old Testament and and they really you'll see three different titles for these scribes okay scribes is just one of them but there's different ones that sort of talk about the different nuances of what they did in the nation of Israel they were referred to as scribes because they preserve the law by writing out copies of the rulings of the ancient rabbis but they were also known as teachers of the law you may have heard that term used as well because they gathered around them boys and young men in rabbinical schools and they would instruct them in the law of god and also lecturing in the courts of the temple and stuff but then thirdly they were also known as lawyers uh, not lawyers in the sense that we have lawyers or attorneys but they were lawyers because they were men who passed judgment on disputes in the nation of Israel. And so those sort of describe the different aspects of, of what they did. And this scribe, he was uh, an expert in the law. And so he comes and he's asking Jesus this, this question, but only 
after he saw the way that they dealt with he dealt with the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. Now, in, in order to get the full picture, you really have to look at Matthew's gospel too. If you want to look at Matthew 22, 34, uh, you'll see that there's a little bit more going on than what Mark lets us know about. Because with Mark's gospel, it seems like this guy is sort of like, hey, I'm sort of a fan of Jesus. And I'm not saying that isn't the case, but there's another sense in which he has some ulterior motives that are going on. Let me read from Matthew's gospel. 22:34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Okay, so in other words, in Mark's gospel, there's sort of like a division between uh, verses 27 and 28. You know, in Mark's gospel, it just looks like you went from one to the next. But according to Matthew, after they heard how Jesus treated the Sadducees, the Pharisees sort of did a huddle together to like, okay, what are we going to do? And it says, and one of them, that is one of the Pharisees, who was a lawyer, it's one of these scribes, asked him a question to test him. And so this scribe came to Jesus really with the intent to trip him up and, and to test him. Now, it's sort of interesting that there are groups of people. The, Sanhed the representatives of the Sanhedrin come to Jesus. The Pharisees come. The political guys, the Herodians come. The Sadducees come. There's all these groups of people. And it's almost like, it's like, okay, well now, none of that work. Let's send in our champion. Let's send in the scribe, you know, that can ask this question. And so he does. So one of the Pharisees asked a question. But it was a genuine question that... that Oftentimes, the religious leaders wrestled with, especially the rabbis wrestled with, and that is, which is the most important commandment? In other words, which commandment supersedes everything else? I like the way R.C. Sproul put it. He said he wanted to know the chief duty, not just of members of the household of Israel and later the Christian community, but of the entire world, of, of every human being created in the image of God. In other words, what's the Bible about? What is it that God is, is calling us to do? And it was common in the Old Testament writings as well as in the teaching of Jesus' time for teachers to attempt to summarize man's chief obligation to God. And so they were always looking for that summary statement. And, and you see that in different scriptures in the Old Testament. Okay, Let me just read a couple that you're familiar with. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's sort of a summary statement of what the Christian is supposed to do. Or Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the last part of it says, The just shall live by faith. We've all heard those sayings before. But not only did they look for scriptures that would sort of summarize that, but sometimes the um, rabbis would try to come up with sort of a summary statement. And let me give an example of that from Rabbi Hillel. He taught about 20 years before Christ had his ministry. And uh, Rabbi Hillel says, he summed it up this way. He says, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. In other words, he was just taking the golden rule and sort of turning it on its head and sort of stating it in a negative way rather than the positive way, the way Jesus did. He sort of did it as a prohibition. And, and this rabbi said later on, he goes, this is the essence of the law. Everything else is mere commentary on it. And so rabbis and others were trying to figure out how do you sort of summarize the law? 
uh, of man. Because there were 615 commandments, at least that's what they came up with, and 365 of those were negative commandments. Thou shalt not, you know, do whatever. And then 248 were positive ones. Thou shalt. And so they were always looking. They wanted to know which commandment was the ultimate commandment. If I could be a little nerdy this morning, it would sort of be, you know, they're looking for the one ring to rule them all, right? From Lord of the Rings, right? That's what they're looking for is that one commandment that could sort of summarize all of those. And so Jesus does that. He gives them that commandment. And the first point I want us to see this morning is that love is the foundation to the law. That love is the foundation to the law. We'll see in verses 29 through 33. Now, as we talk about love, and I think it's interesting that the Lord had uh, Jeff Flora preach on love last week. I thought, wow, two weeks in a row. I thought, okay, Lord, I need to listen, I guess, you know. <laughs> You're wanting to tell me something. But, you know, as we think about love, I think we've got to be careful because oftentimes when we come to the Scriptures, we sort of interpret love in the way we think about love, right? You know, we, everybody has ideas of what love is. And if you don't believe that, talk to somebody and say something that they don't like, and they'll say, well, that's not very loving, because, see, they have some standard in their mind as to what love is. They have some rule by which they go by in their mind. But we have to be very careful that we don't bring our definition of love to the text today. We need to instead let God speak for himself. And so, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is a good passage to keep in mind. And I almost wish I would have printed this out in the bulletin so you could have had 1 Corinthians 13 in front of you as we work through this text that you're constantly referring back to this so that you know what I'm talking about every time I use that word love. And maybe if you have a computer screen, you could do a split screen and do Mark on one side and 1 Corinthians 13 on the other. But let me just read 1 Corinthians 13, just so we sort of have this in our minds as we're working through this text. What is love? Love is patient. Okay, love isn't in a hurry. It's patient. Okay, it's kind. Love doesn't envy. In other words, it's not wanting what somebody else has. It, it doesn't get upset when somebody else gets something better. Nor does love boast. It doesn't brag about what it has as well. It's, it's not arrogant. Okay, it's not self-promoting. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. In other words, it's not about me and what I want doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You see, love knows what God's Word says, and love delights in that truth. Even in those parts of the Scripture that are difficult to understand, or there are some parts of Scripture that really are offensive to us as human beings, and, and, and we can't, it's hard for us to think God works that way, but he does. But truth receives that, it, it rejoices in that, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. So keep that in mind as we're sort of walking through this text. And, and Jesus says in verse 29, the most important is, Shema Yisrael Adonai Adonihu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
the Lord is one. Now, he wouldn't have said it in Hebrew. He would have said it in Greek, okay? <laughs> but I had it memorized in Hebrew. So uh, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema. It's a, something that every faithful Jew would have said every morning and every evening. It was sort of like the creed of, of the nation. And Jesus goes on and he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You see, Jesus says the foundation of the law is love. The foundation of the word of God, of God's commands, is love. Love first and foremost, a love for God. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which is what Jesus is quoting here. And secondly, the love for our neighbor, Leviticus 19, 18. So Jesus is saying the law of God is one law of love. You see, no one can love God without loving his fellow man. And no one can truly love people without first loving God. And so those two ideas go together. That's why he gives them as the first and second commandment. But I want us to understand here, and this is really important in the day and the time in which we live, that there is a sequence of the priority of love. And what I mean by that is this, that our first priority is to love God, that that is the brighter light. That is, the if you could liken it to the sun, it's like the sun. We are to love God first and foremost, even before people. Um, but then secondly, secondly, then we are to love people. That is the lesser light. That's like the moon. And if you know anything about the moon, the moon really doesn't have its own light. The moon just reflects the light of the sun. And if you don't have the light of the sun, if the sun went away, then the moon would have nothing to reflect. And it's the same way with our love. We cannot love people unless we first love God. Because it's only as the love of God shines in our hearts that we can then love other people. Uh, the love of God is the source of our love for people. And that's so important to keep in mind. Because if we love God, we will love people. But if we love people, we will not necessarily love God. And we see this in the church over and over and over and over again today, do we not? Where people will say, we have to do this to show love to the people around us. And yet the this that they want to do to show love, as they define love, is something that goes contrary to what God has said. And so that's not love for God. And so when we get those two things mixed up, we will end up not loving either people. We will not love people, nor will we love God if we seek to love people first. Does that make sense? And so it's so important that we keep that priority. We must not confuse which love is the greater, which is the primary. And we must love God first and foremost. But what is the extent to which we are to love God? How are we to love God? Well, look at verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, 
and with all your strength. Now, Jesus mentions four faculties here, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these four different words have a, a, a little bit of an overlap in meaning, okay? And I think it'd be very easy for us to fall into the trap to say, okay, now how do I love him with my heart? And how do I love him with my soul? And how do I love him with my mind? And so on and so forth. But that's not really the intent of the passage. Really, that overlap is the exact point that all of our faculties are to be loving God. It is to be the totality of who we are that loves God. Every capacity in us, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental, all of us and every part of us is to love God. There is to be nothing held back in how we love God. In any and every way we can, we are to love God. Now, now notice the word that's repeated in verse 30. It's the word what? All, right? All is the word that's repeated. You are to love the Lord your God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Not part of it, not most of it, not just, yeah, so-so part of it, but all of it. Every faculty of us is to love God, and the fullness of each faculty that we have is to love God as well. There is to be no division or split interest in our love for God. He deserves our everything. No one else deserves that. No one else deserves that kind of love. Now, one of the things I think as, in, as a Reformed community we have to keep in mind, um, you know, I, as, as much as we love the Lord and we seek to walk with Him, we can sometimes get things mixed up. And I think one of the temptations and one of the struggles that we can have as Reformed Christians is sometimes we can put our love for our families to be greater than our love for God. And we don't even know it. I know, I, I think back as I'm having these times with the Lord and looking at my own life, I look back and I think, Lord, there are ways, there are things I wish I would have done differently to show my kids that you were supreme and I probably catered too much to them. Because I think sometimes we can find ourselves uh, focusing so much on wanting to have a good family and, and raise godly kids. And all those things are good. And those things are great. But I've also seen many cases in which parents have done that and they spend their, so much time focusing upon their kids and loving their kids the way they think they ought to love their kids that they don't really love God as first and foremost. And in some cases, I don't think this is the only reason why, but kids walk away from the faith. I think there's a lot of factors that, that feed into that. But you know, we have to be careful that, that that love that we have is for God. There's no greater commandment than to love the Lord your God with all that is in you. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. That's the definition of love. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. Love is at the foundation of faithful obedience. You know, we don't obey just to obey. But if there is faithful obedience, it usually comes from a heart of love. That's how important love is. You see, the summary of the law strikes at what it means to be a Christian, a child of God, a disciple of Christ. And at the core of the Christian life is a life of love. And it's an all-encompassing love for God 
not a love as the world understands it. It's not a shallow, fleeting love that's sort of swayed by emotion. I fall in love. I fall out of love. It's not that kind of love. It's not the love that's received by being shot with Cupid's arrow or whatever romantic idea that TV might give to us. But it is a love that is abiding. It, 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 is a, it is a love that, that, that stands in, in the face of opposition. It is a love that, that abides in the face of disappointment. It is a love that is, is faithful. It is a love that is long-suffering and sometimes endures much hardship in your life as you're waiting and waiting. And, and maybe not just for moments or hours or days or weeks or months, but it may be for a lifetime. But it is a love that is also committed to others. It's not about me, but it's about what's doing best for the other person. It is a love that defines faithfulness, faithfully living in the kingdom of God. It is a love that is commanded. And as we stand here before the passage this morning, I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, you know, how do you see your love for God each day? in the strength that he's given to you. How, how do you okay, maybe let me ask it differently. How do you see yourself using the strength that God has given you each day to love him more? How do you use your mind to love God daily? How do you feed your mind in a way to foster a love for God? How do you show God that you love him in the things that you desire. Now, the problem with asking questions like that is then we are breaking it down into those different parts. And I'm, I'm not wanting to do that. So maybe a better question would be is, in what specific ways could a person look at your life and see your love for God and all that you do? Well, Jesus commands us to say that is the foundation of the law. That's the foundation of of the Word of God. That is the foundation of our relationship, a love for God and a love for others. Now, this scribe, here's Jesus' answer in verse 32 and 33, and he says, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. So it almost sounds like he's just repeating to Jesus what he said. But listen to what the scribe adds. He goes, that these things are much more than all the whole burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Love is more than, not just equal to, not sort of better, but much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, the religious leaders were not that impressed with Jesus. Um, and uh, matter of fact, they wanted to kill him. But, but this scribe, while he set a trap for Jesus, is impressed with him. And the scribe is admitting that love is not only the weightiest command, but love is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now that's the important admission on the part of this Jewish man because it reveals something about the fundamental importance of love in the life of God's people. That the life of a Christian is not about a mere rigid obedience. It's not about just trying to keep all God's rules and His commandments. It's not about a life of cold, unrelated obedience to God who cares nothing about His people. But the Christian life is about an obedience to God that is spurred on by love for God. 
I want to obey Him because I love Him. As Christians, we seek to obey God because we love Him. And to love God is to love our neighbors. And for this scribe to say that love is more than a true offering or sacrifice is a massive admission. Because the Old Testament worship surrounded was surrounded around the whole idea of sacrifices and burnt offerings and the ritualistic life of the Israelites centered around giving something to God, doing something. And But here the scribe is saying that to love God is much more than the burnt offerings that was to make atonement for the sin of the offer and gain acceptance to God. You see, he's saying that that sacrifice or obedience is better than sacrifice. Um, there's a number of passages that that I could turn to. I'm gonna, for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip many that I was gonna share. Let me just share one with you. First uh, Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. First Samuel 15:22. Very familiar passage. Samuel is speaking and he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now why is obedience better than sacrifice? Well, because obedience assumes a love for God. And Jesus says in, in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is something that you will want to do. Love is indeed at the center of the Christian life and it is the foundation of faithful obedience. Christianity, we're, we love, but just because we think we ought to do it, not because we love God. You know, isn't it great whenever our kids or our grandkids uh, obey us, not because they have to, but because they love to do it. Doesn't that stir your heart as a parent when your kid comes up and they do it and you know it's not because they're afraid of some kind of discipline or some kind of repercussion. They actually want to do it. And doesn't that just delight your heart as a, as a parent? So that is the first thing we see is just that love is the foundation of the law. Second point, and this is much shorter, so don't worry. Uh, verse 34 uh, not not being far from the kingdom of God. You know, I think it's safe for a lot of us to, uh, I think it's safe to say that we probably all like stories that sort of end with uh, some sense of hope at the end of the story. And in one sense, there's sort of hope at the end of this guy's story in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the sovereign rule of God in your life. You see, the hope is found in that Jesus recognized that the scribe seemed to truly understand the heart of the matter. He understood something about the relationship with God. Where the other religious leaders were all about a legalistic perspective, you know, they sought to keep the law because of prideful arrogance. You know, they were like, I'm obeying the law and I'm going to hold your feet to the fire because I know you're not as spiritual as I am. And so that was sort of their attitude. But this scribe actually was beginning to get it. it was, he, was, it, he was in a different place than these other religious leaders. And so Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But I want you to see this morning, he's also not saying you belong to the kingdom of God. 
brother Jesus was encouraging him to no longer remain outside of the kingdom no longer to remain near the kingdom but it was an encouragement for him to come into the kingdom is what Jesus was saying he was saying you understand something of the vital importance of loving God but come in take that step of faith trust him of course we know that the only way into the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ himself Jesus is the embodiment of God's love towards sinners on the earth. Amen? Uh, Jesus had come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus had come to restore sinners to a relationship with the Father. And it would be through the Holy Spirit that the heart of the sinner would be changed. It would be through the Holy Spirit that the heart of the sinner would be filled with a deep love for God and neighbor. It would be through the Holy Spirit that the heart of the sinner would be changed to desire to live a life of obedience to God's commands. And they would just delight in his commands, not just be like, okay, I got to do it. You see, you're not far from the kingdom. Enter in through me. Brothers and sisters, we should hear these words this morning. You are not far from the kingdom. Now, it's my prayer that you are more than not far from the kingdom. It is my prayer that you are in the kingdom of God. And I think for most of you that is true. That you live your life under his rules so your heart is full of love for God and therefore love for others. You are desirous to read his word in order that you might know his command, that you might know him and, and gladly Submit your life to him to say, Lord, whatever you want, I want to do. I don't care what the cost. My love for you is so much greater. The cost seems like nothing compared to the privilege to serve you. You see, we come to church every Sunday. You know, maybe you read your Bible uh, every day. Maybe you do it personally. Maybe you do it in your family worship. You pray. You tithe. You serve in the church. But do you do so because you love God? Or do you do so because that's what you're supposed to do? Do you do so because of what other people might think of you? Are you not far from the kingdom or are you in the kingdom? I like the story that Derek Thomas tells. He's a PCA pastor. He said he was went to Atlanta and he flew into Atlanta and he said his flight was messed up so he had to stay in the hotel and he said if you think the Atlanta airport is crazy he goes outside the Atlanta airport is even more crazy and he said he was uh, trying to find a bus with like 300 other people who were also trying to find a bus so they could get a hotel and he said he stepped into the bus and he said I got on the bus and he goes I was the last person to get on and the driver shut the door and he said no more and he goes, there were all the people standing outside the door. And he said, they were saying things that I can't really repeat. You know, but he said, they were, they were very angry. And he said, they were not far from getting on the bus. But they were not on the bus. He goes, I was on the bus. This man is not far from the kingdom of God. But he is not in the kingdom of God. You see, John Wesley... Many of you have heard of him. He was born in 1703. Let me just tell you about John Wesley's life. It's actually very impressive. He was the 15th child, 15th child 
of Samuel Wesley, the rector of Epworth, and his wife, Susanna. He enjoyed a, a, a bringing in a, in a Christian home. He went to had a brilliant career at Charterhouse in Oxford, where he was elected fellow of Lincoln College in 1726. There he served as a double professor of Greek and logic. Um, he was ordained a priest in the Church of England in 1728. He returned to Oxford, and there he joined a group of undergraduates led by his brother, Charles Wesley, and a, a later-to-be-great evangelist, George Whitfield. You may have heard of him. And a group of dedicated believers who were the purpose of this group was to build these men up to live a holy life. And so Wesley met with these men for prayer, uh, the study of the Greek New Testament, and uh, devotional exercises. He set aside an hour to pray privately every day and to reflect. He took the sacrament of Holy Communion each week. He, he set himself to conquer every sin in his life. He fasted twice a week. He visited the prisons and he assisted the poor and the sick. In 1735, he accepted an invitation from the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia. Okay, it was quite a fiasco. Uh, he utterly failed as a missionary, by the way, if you've not read an account of his life. He was undergoing miserable conflicts with his colleagues, as well as the fact that he almost died of disease. And when he returned to England, this is what he wrote in his journal, okay? He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Listen, he has that kind of pedigree. And he can write, who shall convert me? You see, his missions experience taught him the wickedness and the waywardness of his own heart. However, not all was lost because in his travels he came across a group of German Moravian Christians who just their, their simple faith impressed Wesley. And so he actually sought out one of the leaders when he got back to London and through a series of conversations to quote Wesley's own words he was clearly convinced of unbelief of the want of that faith whereby alone we are saved. He didn't see that saving faith in his own heart as he talked to this other Christian. Then on the morning of May 24th, 1738, something happened that Wesley would never forget. He opened his Bible sort of haphazardly and he, his eyes fell on the text, which was Mark 12, 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And Wesley said that those words reassured him, and, and they should, because that evening uh, he actually uh, became a Christian. He gave his heart to the Lord and followed him. And this text was to become Wesley's life verse, a reminder of what the shape of his life looked like for the first 35 years. Regardless of the privilege, he was far from the kingdom of God. But now he knows he is in the kingdom of God. What about us for this morning? What, what can we take away from this? Let me just very quickly, there are several lessons. First, it is entirely possible to have grown up in the church, to have consistent, godly parents, kids, and never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You could be a teenager here today, 
And you could be raised in a Christian home and you could not know Christ. Second, it's also completely possible to have studied theology and have never become a, a Christian. You, you can know the scriptures better than the preacher and yet not have faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's possible to have heard the grace of Christ preached all your life and yet you are resting on your own goodness. It's possible to become a gospel-hardened person. So it's possible to become gospel-hardened and so seal your damnation even within the church. It's possible to fool everyone and to have the preacher preach your funeral and talk about how you're going to heaven when in reality you're in hell. Fifth, it's, it's possible to be within an inch of the kingdom of God and yet not be in it. Brothers and sisters, this is the sobering truth. This abiding truth reminds us that convictions that we don't act upon will just die. They'll just eventually go away. Truths that we don't follow, that we just sort of ignore as the Holy Spirit convicts us, will just sort of fade away. Lingering can become a habit and we can either go in or we can go further away from the kingdom. And the question for us this morning is, are you near to the kingdom of God, but not in it? There, there are times when just a single step makes a difference. You know, when a man or a woman who's standing at the entrance to an airplane, if they take that one step, then they will find themselves on the way to a new destination. But if they stand inactive, they'll never go anywhere but stay right where they are. This is a call to you this morning to come to God through Jesus Christ. Come to God to delight in Him and to love others. Now, I understand in, in this life, none of us will ever come to a full sense of what it means to love God and to love others without some sin mixed in with that. We never do that perfectly but I think we need to ask ourselves this morning are you enduring in that faith are you enduring to love God and to follow him first and foremost and to love others are you seeking God to know him more through his word and, and prayer with the aid of the Holy Spirit is that something that you wrestle after that you seek after not that you casually have if you have time you'll do it if you don't you don't and then even when you do, you just read it and you, you pray and you close your Bible, that's it. Or is it a relationship where you talk with God, where you listen to Him, where, you, where your heart is stirred to love Him more? Are you seeking to love those people God has placed in your life, even the unlovely, with the strength and the ability that He gives you? Jesus is urging you to no longer stand on the outside, but to enter in. Now I know a lot of people will ask, did the scribe enter the kingdom of kingdom of God? And the answer is, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But if, if you're here this morning, that ought not to be the question that you're wrestling with the most. But really it should be the question, have I entered in? Let's pray.
Oh Lord, we thank you so much for the word that you have given to us. Oh God, what how amazing and great it is that you can bring such a change in our hearts and our lives that we can love you and we can love others because of the work in you. And we pray, God, as a church and as a congregation that we would do exactly that. That as much as we love, that we, as Paul tells the Thessalonians, that they would be compelled to love even more so. But Father, I want to pray this morning for those within the sound of my voice that if they do not know you, I pray, oh God, if they are not in, if they are only near, that you will bring them into your kingdom this day. That they would know the true joy and the peace of walking with you, of loving you. We pray in your name. Amen.